0: Welcome to the 5th of ALL, the anatomy of the lower limb, and this is the anatomy of the popliteal fossa and the knee, it's a bit of a lengthy one, so there's a bit of a way uh, for us to go through. Um, We start actually I think with the anatomy of the back of the thigh which we haven't completed, the posterior or hamstring compartment that's separated from the quadriceps by the lateral intermuscular septum without an effective medial septum as we know the cutaneous nerve supply here is the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve what used to be called the posterior cutaneous nerve of the thigh and that runs down to the mid calf but it's subfascial and it separates the sciatic nerve from the more superficial structures as a kind of protector. Now, these hamstrings all arise from the ischial tuberosity, and they include the semimembranosus, the semitendinosus, and the long head of the biceps femoris. The area is separated by the adductor magnus, which in man becomes redundant as the tibial collateral ligament. The short head of the biceps femoris arises from the full length of the linear aspera laterally of the femur and also part of that lateral supracondylar line of the femur, not really therefore a hamstring which spans the hip and knee joints, so we don't consider it as a strict hamstring. The semimembranosus arises from a smooth facet on the lateral ischial tuberosity. You can check that out on the bone if you have one. And that tendon is long and flat very membranous and it's rounded laterally rather sharp like a razor blade medially. There really is no other muscle quite like it. And its relationship is that just lateral to it, the sciatic nerve is then sitting on the adductor magnus and it's of course deep to the long head of biceps femoris. The flat tendon of the semimembranosus passes deep to the rounded one of the semitendinosus muscle Uh, and the muscle fibers are rising from its medial side. Um, So as I've said, this cord-like tendon of the semitendinosus sort of sits on it if you're looking at the back of the thigh. And um, the semimembranosus gives way to a sort of stoutish uh, tendon, which is then horizontally attached to the back of the medial tibial condyle, but from which there are a lot of fascial diversions, which are very robust in themselves. There's one that passes forward below the tibial collateral ligament, one that passes sort of obliquely upwards and backwards as a specialised so-called oblique popliteal ligament, and one sort of last one, which is a strong band, which reaches down as far as the soleal line on the back of the tibia, if you look at that, if you've got a tibia. The semitendinosis arises in common with the long head of biceps femoris on the medial facet of the ischial tuberosity, so like a common origin is in the upper limb between the brachialis and the short head of biceps brachii, although not homologous, but it's a similar sort of arrangement and there's quite a bit of muscle up high on the semitendinosus, but then it sits, as I've said, in the gutter of the semimembranosus as a very thick cord, and of course it runs down to the medial upper tibia just behind the grassless, caught in that little so-called bursar or pes serenus. So the biceps femoris, of course, has two heads of origin, as it says. I've already said the long head arises in a common origin with the semitendinosus and passes down to be joined by the short head. The origin of that is off the bone uh, upon neurotic, but it quickly forms a very stout muscle that runs vertically downwards to fuse with the long head, and that forms a single stout tendon which is inserted into the fibular head just in front of its so-called styloid process. I'll be going into this Rather complex bone, the fibula and its osteology in the next podcast. For now just appreciate the insertion and like the semi-membranosis the insertion of the biceps is a little bit more complex than that because laterally it sweeps across the superior tibiofibular joint and onto the lateral tibial condyle. And the tendon is also folded a little around the fibular collateral ligaments. So on both lateral and medial sides, the biceps femoris and the semimembranosus respectively have a much more complex kind of fascial extension or origin, Oh, or I should say insertion, we would be using that term now, uh, uh, than we think. It's not just around the medial tibial condyle for semimembranosus, it's not just around the head of the fibula for biceps femoris. Now, these hamstrings are um, basically the sort of sink, if you like, for the perforating branches of the profunda femoris artery. And as, as they supply the muscle and the skin, they pierce the lateral intermuscular septum. They go round in sort of circular arcs and they sink into the substance of the vastus lateralis muscle. The upper part is, of course, the cruciate anastomosis and specifically that has to attach to the inferior gluteal artery, which is here, as we've said before, the axial vessel of the lower limb. I'm trying to reinforce these little points as we go. The nerve supply is the tibial compartment of the sciatic nerve, or the tibial component of the sciatic nerve, but the short head of the biceps is an exception here because its nerve supply comes from the fibular nerve, or the perineal nerve through the L5-S1 myotomal segments. Um, So these have migrated, in a sense, back from the extensor surface, in other words, and that's why there's that difference in neural um, innovation. So these hamstrings obviously flex the knee, but if the quadriceps holds the knee out, then they become hip extensors, and that's why they're so-called true hamstrings. And it is easy to see that the semi-muscles also medially rotate and the biceps laterally rotates the knee, or the reverse one looks at the movement of the weight-bearing tibia, we're talking about the movement of the femur. Note of course that the position of the sciatic nerve uh, in the back of the thigh obviously has great relevance in a stab wound or if you're doing an above knee amputation to locate it. And it's vertical, it's deep to the long head of biceps and it lies on top of the adductor magnus. And the usual arrangement is a tibial fibular split, in other words just above the popliteal fossa, but it can be a very high split or even a total split in which it splits through the piriformis and in which the fibular component usually perforates the piriformis muscle. So we know about these typical variants. And if you're Uh, um, there at the midpoint between the ischial tuberosity and the greater trochanter, then the surface marking of that nerve, the sciatic nerve, is a kind of vertical strip all the way down to the popliteal fossa midway. And as we know, the axial vessel of the limb is the so-called companion artery of the sciatic nerve, or what we call the arteria comitans nervi ischiodici. that's the terminal branch of the inferior gluteal. And of course, it's a a comitant nerve, so it's called an arteria comatans nervi, isiodice being the old term, of course, Latin term for the sciatic nerve, the ischiatic nerve. Now, I want to move on, if I can, to the patella and the patellofemoral joint, separate from the knee joint, but we have to consider it. And we need to look, I think, firstly at a patella. It's a sesamoid bone, that means a bone really embedded in a tendon, with a situation in the oblique Pull of the quadriceps tendon, which naturally would draw the patella laterally and require, therefore, a series of mechanisms in place which prevent its lateral dislocation. And these are mechanisms of bony, ligamentous, and muscular origin. The bony mechanism is, of course, the prominence or the so-called trochlea, which just means a pulley, on the lateral femoral condyle, with the ligamentous factor being the medial patella retinacular fibres um, contributed to by the insertion, as we've said already, of semimembranosis, along with the direct entry into the patella of parts of the vastus medialis fibres. This area is more correctly referred to as the vastus medius obliquus, which actually emanates uh, from uh, really... Um, the anterior quadriceps muscle and it ends really on the medial patellofemoral ligament. So, there are a number of anomalies as we know of the patella, which include patellofemoral pain, or I might say anticipation, malalignment, chondromalacia, abnormal angulation or congruence, dysplasia, both patella and trochlea. Uh, the joint is actually a little bit more complex, I think, than realized. So, to reassess the patella, I think you need to get your hands on one, if you can, and lay it down on the table. And we identify, obviously, the superior and the inferior apex, and the larger lateral facet, if you're looking at it at the time, so that it lays on its defining side, if you're putting it down. It's obviously triangular, has a thin cortical shell and a trabecular core, with a round superior base and a pointed distal apex. Now if you turn it over you can see the articular surface which actually has seven facets that are described with a small kind of distal non-articular part. There are three medial facets, a superior, middle and inferior and there are lateral facets also superior, middle and inferior. And the most medial facet articulates with the medial condyle in deep knee flexion. You can see that the medial facets are a bit smaller than the lateral facets. And there are a number of different patella types based on the medial and lateral facets that have been described by Weiberg, for example, if you want to look that up. And we also note the bursae around here, which includes the deep infrapatellar bursa, just proximal to the tibial tubicle. The pesensoria, which I've mentioned before, for the semimembranosus bursa as well, the biceps femoris bursa, the prepatellar, the superficial infrapatellar bursa. So there's a number of these big bursae. A few extra points, and that is that the lateral patella dislocation is the typical one, usually in the second decade of life, with a correlation with a higher risk if there's some degree of trochlear dysplasia, an increase in the tibial to tubercle to trochlear groove ratio, or horizontal distance, the so-called high riding or patella alta, and there is actually a so-called bident bidert, patello trochlear index, which is based on MR imaging, and that's the articular trochlear overlap, for example, which should be greater. Than 12.5%. The, the more common index that's known about the risk of patella dislocation is the so-called insol salviati index, which is the patella tendon length uh, by patella division, if you like, uh, a length that any value is greater than 1.2, being referred to as a patella alter. So there are these risk factor patellae for dislocation. And there are other indices which you can go and look up uh, if you so desire, the caton de which is between the articular patella and the distal tibial cubicle. There's a Blackman-Peel index and there are many methods in the axial view with MRI to also assess the trochlear depth itself and development. The, p- the patella has an ossification which occurs uh, at about three and, and usually that is civic central fuse or combine by puberty. So That's really all one needs to know, but if those are interested in patellofemoral dislocation, there are certainly a number of indices for this and risk factors that you can look up. Um, Let's move on, I think, to the popliteal fossa before we discuss the knee joint. Now, In the study of this fossa, we're reminded, of course, I think, of the cubital fossa. The popliteal fossa is fully diamond-shaped, and as its upper medial and lateral borders, we we have the hamstring components, the semimembranosus and its rounded cord, the semitendinosus medially, and the biceps femoris tendon laterally. Now, inferiorly, of course, are the medial and the lateral head of the gastrocnemius, respectively. The roof is effectively the fasciolata, and that area is pierced variably, of course, by the short uh, saphenous vein and also by the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve of thigh or posterior femoral cutaneous nerve. The floor going from highest to lowest is really the popliteal surface of the femur, then the capsule of the knee joint with the popliteous muscle and its tendon. The popliteal artery and vein pass through as does the tibial nerve and the common fibular nerve supralaterally, and there are often a collection medially also of popliteal lymph nodes. The lower lateral boundary is the landmark of the popliteal fossa, which orientates it to side if you're just looking at a small chopped off bit of the popliteal fossa. Now in brief, because I'll cover the lumbosacral plexus another time, but we have the common peroneal or more correctly these days the common fibular nerve that's the posterior divisions of L4-5 S1-2 and, and it lies just medial to the biceps femoris tendon a little vulnerable here actually and then it finally sinks into the substance of the peroneus or fibularis longus where it lies in close proximity to the neck of the fibula now it can actually be felt or more correctly rolled against the fibula and its importance is in a baloney amputation, where it can be caught in scar tissue, and can produce a very painful stump neuroma. Uh, it lies progressively on plantaris when that's present, and then the lateral head of menius and the knee capsule, and it's also against the fibular origin of soleus. Normally, I must say, in a baloney amputation, I don't physically go looking for this nerve, but you know that if you stay very close to that fibular head, you can injure it. You've got to, at some stage, divide the fibular neck using a Gilles saw. Um, that usually, you don't actually have to visualise it. Here in the popliteal fossa, of course, the nerve, that's the common fibular nerve, has several branches, and they include a perineal communicating nerve, which joins the sural nerve below the gastric gastrocnemius bellies Um, a lateral cutaneous nerve of the calf that does run on to the extensor part of the leg a superior and inferior genicular nerves and they run with similarly named arteries and are part of the lateral uh, innervation of the knee joint and there's a recurrent genicular nerve there are only a few such recurrent nerves in the body do you remember what they are Uh, um, the recurrent genicular nerve actually starts life in the substance of the fibularis longus and then pierces the tibialis anterior. It'll actually supply its upper lateral fibres proprioceptively to that muscle. And it's also a sensory innervation of the capsule and the superior tibia fibular joint as well as the knee. Have you thought of the recurrent nerves, obviously the recurrent laryngeal nerve which we spoke of in the first season, And there's a recurrent nerve, which we mentioned in the upper limb earlier this year, the recurrent thenar nerve. There aren't many of them in the body where a nerve is given off distally to the area that it's innervating. The uh, common fibular nerve obviously ultimately divides in the substance of the fibularis longus into a superficial fibular nerve, largely a sensory nerve, and its deep fibular nerve, the lateral is a mixed nerve, but principally the compartment muscular nerve of the extensor compartment of the leg, which we'll consider in the next podcast, and then that little wedge of skin between the great and second toes. Here in brief also is the tibial nerve, and the nerve runs vertically down across the popliteal fossa. It passes with the popliteal vessels beneath the fibrous arch of the soleus. To actually see that, you have to pull the heads of the gastrocnemius away from one another, that is, distract them. And that really does homologically remind us of the way the median nerve passes under the fibrous arch of the origin of the flexor digitorum superficialis. Both the soleus and the FDS have a, a, an origin to the pre- and post-axial bone. So they form an arch and the arm, the median nerve, runs under the arch of the origin of the flexor digitorum superficialis in the lower limb It runs, that is, the tibial nerve runs under the arch of the soleus. The tibial nerve supplies the motor branch to the muscles of the fossa, namely the plantaris, both the heads of the gastrocnemius, the soleus and the popliteus, naturally. And the tibial nerve is, however, mixed with its cutaneous branch, really the sural nerve, and it's like a sensory continuation, if you like, of the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve in the lower calf, And close it sits to the small saphenous vein. It's joined by the perineal communicating nerve. And in most cases, the sural nerve is lateral to the vein. But I have to confess that it can be very hard to find for a sural nerve biopsy if needed. And I think these days it's wisest to use an ultrasound to locate the short um, saphenous vein first. And you can actually permit a local kind of vascular hydrodissection and you can nowadays perform a pinpoint percutaneous biopsy technique seeing the sural nerve under ultrasound. I learned this, I must say, at my peril once. Uh, very difficult nerve sometimes to find. And it's an interesting point, since sural nerve biopsy sampling, which is done uh, still for suspected vasculitis or peripheral neuropathy, can actually be a failed diagnosis, a failed biopsy, in effect, in up to 40% of cases. So it's an interesting little technical point. The rest of the tibial nerve, to finish it off, are the articular genicular branches. They're three in number and they include the superior and inferior medial genicular nerves which accompany the appropriate vessels, um, uh, supplying the medial joint and the medial collateral ligament and also the middle genicular which pierces the oblique popliteal ligament and innervates the cruciate nerves. Now we've got also I think the popliteal vessels here too, this runs deeply in the fossa as we know it, always tends to be vein, artery and nerve, but this is a little bit different. By definition, it's similar to the axillary and brachial artery. The popliteal artery has definitional points and it runs from just below the adductor hiatus until the artery enters the subcelial arch so that in an average adult, that makes it about 20 centimetres long, which obviously is of importance for a direct vascular reconstructed bypass surgery and for vascular axis approaches. High up, it's deep to the sciatic nerve and often a little medial to it, but it runs laterally down the fossa. So this reminds me a bit of the median nerve relationship to the brachial artery. And then below the soleal arch, the continuation is as the posterior tibial artery, and that too tends to run to the medial side of the tibial nerve. So to remember, it kind of sinuously runs from medial to lateral and then back to medial again. The vein interposes between the artery and the nerve, so that does make it a bit different. And this artery is the one we, of course, to attempt, we attempt to feel pulsation in the back of the knee, where it's typically a little tethered by the short middle genicular artery. The popliteal artery, of course, has muscular branches to the nemiae. It has sural arteries, and these are lateral and medial. There's an inferior nemial branch, and they can have all separate origins. They can all come from a common trunk, so there's a little bit of arterial variation there. And there uh, are, of course, genicular arteries, and they're often described as five in number. And these are the medial and lateral upper and lowers, so that it's easy to remember it's an encircling knee anastomosis and, of course, a middle genicular artery, which, as we know, supplies the cruciate. So pretty easy to remember that. And this little artery has the accompanying genicular branch of the posterior division of the obturator um, nerve. And that's important because we recall that in the so-called househip romberg sign, which is a very real feature of a strangulated obturator hernia presenting with knee pain. That's because that little branch of the obturator nerve, uh, which supplies the knee there, is uh, is involved in an obturator, strangulated obturator hernia. I've seen, I think, probably about three or four of about four cases, I think, one about one a decade of practice, and they all presented with knee pain. So that's my vast experience of strangulated obturator hernia. But that's the reason behind it. Um, I seem to recall all of them presenting with knee pain anyway as part of their small bowel obstruction. The upper lateral and medial genicular arteries run over the top of the respective gastrocnemial heads and they anastomose with the end of the lateral circumflex femoral and a deep branch of the so-called descending genicular artery which is in many books, called the anastomotica magna, which is an artery really just coming off the femoral just before the adductor hiatus, and that divides into a saphenous artery and a kind of muscular, articular branch. So there's a bit of variation there, but that's what the anastomotica magna is. The former runs along, that's the saphenous artery, with the saphenous nerve just below the gracilis insertion, and it pierces the deep fascia. And it anastomoses with the medial inferior geniculate artery. The latter runs, that's a sort of muscular articular branch, runs through the substance of the vastus medialis and it forms an anastomosis with the medial superior geniculate and also an anterior recurrent tibial artery. So the medial anastomosis is a little bit more complex. There's a recurrent anterior tibial artery on the lateral side it's just between the upper and lower lateral genicular arteries. The two lower genicular arteries all pass under their respective gastric menial heads and the respective ligaments so that the lateral one is directly behind the lateral meniscus. The artery itself we're talking about the popliteal artery now is best approached medially with a flexed knee behind the tendon of the adductor magnus and You just detach the medial head of the gastric, there's sometimes a bursa there, and there's some advantages here. One can retract the great saphenous vein, but it can also be used at this point for a direct autogenous harvest. And it's particularly useful in traumatic injury to the artery, it can be used with an external fixateur. You've got a nice medial approach there as well. You can do a vascular bypass. The medial head of the gastroc can be replaced Uh, uh, if you like, as well, uh, as a kind of artery protector. You can just sort of distract it from its origin and then just uh, re-rotate it, if you like, directly over uh, the popliteal artery or uh, a venous anastomosis that has been created there. The approach, I think, also allows almost complete arterial exposure. One can extend upwards to expose the lower femoral artery. You can go down to expose the tibials. The lower incision can be continued, actually, as a fasciotomy in complex cases if needed. Uh, Frank uh, Veith, one of the American vascular surgeons, also in the late 80s, described a lateral exposure of the artery between the end of the iliotibial tract and the biceps femoris. Uh, for those interested in vascular surgery, let me know on our uh, Meta or Facebook site, and I can make an additional podcast on this, a kind of vascular access anatomy podcast of the upper and lower limb, if you like, if you let us know, I'm quite happy to do that. Um, Come to think of it, it's not a bad idea to do altogether. Now, we of course also have the popliteal vein here as well, which forms from the venae cometantes of the posterior tibial and the anterior tibial arteries, and which receives the short saphenous vein. Now, a little point here is also to say that the short sapheno-popliteal junction can, of course, be a lot higher than you think, and that needs to be marked by ultrasound. I want to remind here also of the so-called vein of Jacomini. That's the branch of the upward extension of the short saphenous vein, which connects it to the posterior thigh circumflex vein. And we note that in about 10%, of cases, the short saphenous vein actually continues as the Giacomini vein, and that vein would be targeted endovenously either by laser or by sclerotherapy. So the management of these has become, it it always was anatomically based, but it's become endovenous and a bit uh, 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 different to to the original old days. Now I want to move, uh, if I can, uh, on to the anatomy of the knee. Uh, because this is quite an extensive area and uh, this is going to take a little while. Now the knee is a synovial joint with the additional patellar articulation, some of which we've already mentioned. The geometry of this joint is more complex than a simple hinge where the flex knee can obviously rotate and of course rotates in a different kind of screw home manner in full extension with adaptation to weight bearing. So to recap, there are two joints, a tibiofemoral and a patellofemoral. The knee weight bears with its hinge where there is a small degree of tibial axial rotation. If the stance phase is adopted, then there is a progression through the quadriceps muscle, the patellofemoral joint, and then along the tibialis anterior and the ankle joint. Now, we can review the quadriceps a little here. It consists of seven discrete heads and is the primary extensor. The deepest head, as we've already discussed, is the articularis genu, which we've Met before, it's the only muscle not entering the patella but rather terminating in the superior synovial pleca. The vastus medialis parallels the femoral shaft and forms the deep aponeurotic layer. The rectus femoris parallels the vastus and is the deep aponeurosis indirectly into the superior patella, then running in the retinacular layer. And the other muscles insert at an angle to the femoral axis, the vastus lateralis making up some more than 50% of the quadriceps bulk. The patellar tendon inserts, as we know, into the tibial tubercle, but it has a superficial layer that is contiguous with the retinacular layer, as I've defined, and it also has a deep layer. And these layers are not distinctly separable, a bit like the subscapularis tendon and its relationship to the anterior capsule of the shoulder joint. They're discrete but not separable. Um, Now the tibiofemoral articulation, when you examine the upper plateau of the tibia, there are two separate articular facets, both of which you can see are gently concave. The medial facet is wholly part of the medial condyle, but the lateral facet is gently convex at the back, and that extends a little on to the tibia. The point is that these articular surfaces on the tibial plateau are different, and they're different for a reason. That's important because it's here that the lateral meniscus can be distracted, or withdrawn, if you will, by the popliteus tendon. If you look at the femoral condyles, there's a very deep posterior notch and an anterior trochlea as we know for patellar articulation. We've discussed the osteology of the femur but if you want you could go back to the earliest of the lower limb podcasts to re-go over that area again. The distal surface of the medial condyle is narrower and longer and more curved than that of the lateral condyle. On the femur the capsule attaches below the epiphysis, and extends down to this articular margin, except at the back, where it's attached to that intercondylar ridge. And on the lateral condyle, it encloses the popliteus, which I'll go into a bit later. The capsule attaches on the tibial side, where it runs around the plateau, also except in two places, namely posteriorly, where it's attached in that deep groove near the posterior cruciate ligament, And laterally, where the capsule isn't attached to the tibia, but rather it extends along the popliteus tendon towards the stylus process, or the styloid process, I'm sorry, of the head of the fibula, an area we can call actually the arcuate popliteal ligament. The medial aspect of the capsule is a bit thicker than the lateral aspect and it attaches to the medial meniscus. The lateral capsule, therefore, is a little thinner under the lateral ligament and between that area is, in some books, known as the so-called coronary ligament where it's really quite thin, just running around the side of the knee joint. And between these areas, uh, we can see that the ligaments are therefore extracapsular but intraarticular. The extracapsular component includes the patellar retinacular, which I've already mentioned, the tibial collateral ligament, the fibular collateral ligament, and this oblique popliteal ligament. The intraarticular ligaments, of course, include the anterior and posterior cruciate ligaments respectively, and the medial and lateral menisci, as well as specialised so-called menisco femoral ligaments I'll go into those briefly later on and that means that the bulk of the popliteal tendon is intraarticular, quite a unique structure in effect because it doesn't directly act on the joint as a joint ligament and the tendon and the cruciates as I've said to reiterate are intra-articular but they're enveloped by synovium they're extra synovial right Now, the synovial pleca is part of the embryological development of the knee, but it's variable, and it governs the connection between the main knee joint and the suprapatellar bursa. The infrapatellar fat pad has a specific vascular arcade of the inferior medial and lateral geniculate arteries, and that's the principal blood supply to the anterior cruciate ligament. So it's actually rather tenuously held by a synovial fold the so-called ligamentum mucosum, as some books call it, which can be actually damaged, and that may lead to ankylosis for that reason. The stability is balanced, really, in a sense of the knee, with the hamstring group acting as antagonists medially and laterally to the posterior cruciate ligament to prevent an anterior subluxation. And these are inserted into the relative side of the capsular ligaments. The iliotibial tract and the gastrocnemii act also to stabilise the joint by augmenting those capsular ligaments. The static stability is a contribution, therefore, of the tibiofemoral ligaments, the menisci, and the architectural topography of those articular surfaces. So let's have a little look at these ligaments to know a little bit more about them. They seem to be in every sporting injury we can see. The patella retinacula extend to the lower part of the tibial condyles, and they're extensions, really, of the vastus medialis and the vastus lateralis. The tibial collateral ligament, what we call the medial ligament, comprises a superficial part which attaches below the adductor tubercle on the femur and it extends down onto the subcutaneous border of the tibia. And that's got a broad attachment, but it's separate from the medial meniscus. Posteriorly, however, it is attached and is tibially separated by the semitendinosus bursa, Um, that's the so-called serenus, because it looks like a goose's foot. Now at this point the inferior medial geniculate vessels and nerve run. This part is relatively lax and it's extensive enough that it becomes taut by that kind of medial screw-home mechanism with knee extension that I spoke about. The deep part of the ligament is attached to the capsule and it attaches to a little bit of the medial meniscus. The part above and below the femur is considered the kind of phylogenetic extension, if you like, of the adductor magnus. If we go to the other side, the fibular collateral ligament, or what we call the lateral ligament, slopes off towards the head of the fibula from the femur, and it's free completely from the capsule. There's quite a space there, and the lateral meniscus is separate as well, and it's actually separated from the meniscus by the oblique popliteal ligament intraarticulary, and here outside the joint, by the lateral genicular vessels. So this is offset off the knee joint itself, uh, a much more rounded cord, the lateral genicular vessels running underneath it, and it's separate from the lateral meniscus. Now the medial ligament is a flat, sharp fan, but the lateral ligament is really effectively just a cord structure that's offset of the joint. And that's phylogenetically considered on the lateral side to be the extension of the fibularis longus with really the styloid process of the fibula kind of lying in the way. Now we mentioned also that there's an oblique popliteal ligament. This is perforated by the middle genicular vessels and is a contribution really uh, of the semimembranosus, which extends to the femur and that area then fills in that deep intercondylar notch. And it's a limit, really, of the rotation that the knee can undergo during extension. So it's contributed to this oblique popliteal ligament by the extension of the semimembranosus, which is quite a complex insertional fan. So there's an arcuate popliteal ligament, which I've mentioned before, and that arches over the popliteus tendon and it emerges from the joint and it extends down also into the styloid process of the fibula so it's a kind of lateral stabilizer so therefore to reiterate because this is a complex area to understand there are medial and lateral mid third and posterior third ligaments that are part of the static tibiofemoral ligaments Posturo-medially and posturo-laterally, there's a hamstring extension that wraps around the joint, and these prevent posterior joint subluxation of the femoral condyles on the tibial plateau. On the medial side, there's an aponeurotic extension of the sartorius, of the vastus medialis, the anterior medial retinaculum, and in the middle layer of the tibial collateral ligament, although there's no such specific name as the medial collateral ligament as such there. On the medial side, the posterior third of the capsule has ligaments that originate from the adductor tubercle. as I've mentioned, the oblique popliteal ligament, which runs, as it says, obliquely and posteriorly, and is confluent with the posterior arcuate ligament. The posteromedial stability is created by the semimembranosus extensions, which I've already spoken about, are complexly uh, divided area into five separate components. It has an anterior arm, a tibial arm, which some people call the pars reflexor, a direct arm into the posterior tibial tubercle, a posterior arm, the inferior border really of the oblique popliteal ligament, and a capsular arm, which is confluent with the posterior oblique ligament near the medial gastrocnemius bursa. And finally, one could add an inferior arm, which broadly attaches to the posteromedial tibia and blends with the popliteal fossa. So you can have all these extensions from the semimembranosus. Antrilaterally, superficially, um, this is attached to the iliotibial band and the biceps femoris fascia. The iliotibial band here is actually separated <coughs> into... An iliopatellar ligament and the iliotibial tract proper, which is part of the tibia femoral uh, joint. And that part runs laterally as the so called fabello femoral ligament. It inserts into the so called GERDI tibial tubercle. It's a lateral tubercle, and that's really the movement on a pivot test in the jerk test of rotation when these rupture. Here, the biceps femoris is an extension, as I've said like the medial semimembranosus bursa on the medial side. Laterally, this all extends into the posterolateral capsule, into the fabella and the lateral head of the gastrocnemius. So it's not just a simple medial collateral ligament or semimembranosus tendon or a lateral fibular collateral ligament or biceps femoris. It's much more complex than that on each side for medial and lateral stability. We're then left with the posterolateral side, and that's deep to the iliotibial tract and that iliopatellar ligament that I've mentioned, and this bit attaches to the lateral meniscus, as I've already said. Deeply lies the popliteal tendon and the fibular collateral ligament. The popliteal ligament passes through a little popliteal, popliteal hiatus of the lateral meniscus, and it attaches here to the popliteus muscle. But it also does attach to the lateral meniscus anteriorly and inferiorly, but also posteriorly and superiorly, as well as, I guess, even posteriorly and inferiorly, all the way around, actually, it attaches. The arcuate ligament is located at the postrolateral corner, and that's similar in function to that oblique popliteal ligament of the medial side. It merges with the oblique popliteal ligament around the lateral gastrocnemius head, and one can consider an arcuate complex, if you like, as including the fibular collateral ligament, the popliteus, the lateral head of the gastrocnemius and the arcuate ligament. So there are all of these separate structures and sometimes the books are clearly talking about different structures and I think it's probably better to think of each medially and laterally as a complex. So that's really what I would expect, want you to know a little bit about the ligaments. We need to know a bit about the menisci as well. And uh, these are made, as we know, of fibrocartilage like the glenoidal and acetabular labry and are almost avascular. We know that the medial meniscus, which is more likely to be injured partly because of valgus strain mechanisms, is actually larger and more comma rather than C-shaped, more open as a curved structure, with an anterior horn that's attached to the intercondylar part of the tibia in front of the anterior cruciate and with a much broader, less-tipped posterior horn that's attached just in front of the posterior cruciate. As we know, it's intimately attached to the medial ligament in a way that the lateral ligament is not attached to, uh, again, making the combined medial injury of the knee, which is the medial meniscus, the medial collateral ligament, and the anterior cruciate, that complex triad, much more likely. In contradistinction, the lateral meniscus is truly more C-shaped, with its horns attached to the intercondylar area over a much smaller area, just in front of and behind the intercondylar spine. And you can examine that area on a tibia if you have one to confirm what I've just said. There are posteriorly located slings which attach to the medial condyle of the femur, both in front of and behind the attachment of the posterior cruciate. And so these are what we call the posterior menisco femoral ligaments, the ligament of Humphrey and Risberg, respectively. So these are obliquely running from the lateral to medial side across the back and the front of the posterior cruciate. And the area around these ligaments has a lax coronary ligament, in the way I've defined it, uh, which is perforated by the popliteus tendon. So that makes a little bit more sense. There's also, I think, a transverse ligament, which can be a little variable, and that can pass between the anterior horns of the menisci. The menisci has a minimalist blood supply Uh, uh, they have at their extremes from capsular vessels, as well as nutrition, nutrients from the that they draw from the synovial fluid. there's also, as I've said, the tendon of the popliteus, which ultimately lies between the capsule and the synovium, so that it's not free in the knee joint itself and it's covered with synovium, except where part of the bare lateral meniscus abuts directly against the bare tendon of the popliteus. And these, these two could occasionally be quite adherent to one another, but that's fairly uncommon. The menisci have specific biomechanics, they're load bearing. And they guide rotation and stability. The broader medial meniscus is a little thinner, as I've said, than the lateral one, and it's more anchored in the central posterior region and around its rim. The lateral meniscus is more saucer shaped, a little more triangular in cross section, with the medial one more wedge shaped and a little more like a kind of bow tie in a sagittal MRI. And so that's what we need to know about it. We know about the likelihood because of valgus strains of the medial meniscus injury being much more common than the lateral meniscus injury. We'll come into that later as well. Now, we're led to discuss, I think, the cruciates yet. The cruciates are a pair of very strong ligaments that directly connect the tibia to the femur. These two are intra-articular but extra synovial, as we've said so that the posterior surfaces are bare. They're invaginating the synovium. And these cruciates are specifically named for their tibial attachment. So let's get this right. I always find this confusing. The anterior cruciate ligament, or ACL, attaches to the anterior part of the tibial plateau in front of the tibial spine, and therefore it runs upwards and backwards to an impression on the lateral condyle of the femur, posteriorly in that deep intercondylar notch. By contrast, the posterior cruciate ligament, called the PCL if you like, attaches to the posterior part of the tibial plateau, and it passes therefore forwards and is attached to a smooth impression on the medial condyle of the femur anteriorly, deep inside that intercondylar notch. Got it? The ACL is an anteromedial and a posterolateral bundle. Let's be a bit more complex, the anteromedial bundle being tighter in extension, the postural lateral bundle a little tighter in flexion. And because these bundles actually spiral around one another, the action is a little bit more complicated, and their tension increases as the tibia internally rotates. So the ACL inhibits or limits hyperextension of the knee, but it's also anterior translation, as I've said before. Its biomechanics, as I've also said, are best postured in slight knee flexion. The little blood supply that's there comes from an anastomosis between the medial and lateral inferior geniculate arteries and that middle geniculate artery, and that blood supply is typically disrupted in any ACL tear, and that explains why repairs of these are often, almost always, unsuccessful. Regarding the PCL, that represents the centre of axial rotation of the knee, and it too has two bundles, a posteromedial and an anterolateral, with the former taut in extension and the latter in flexion. These bundles also wrap around one another, as in the posterior draw test in internal rotation, which tests the PCL competency. So when the knee is fully extended, the PCL is the principal restraint to translation or abduction, adduction stress. But because the PCL has an association with that posterior capsule, the blood supply is not generally lost with a PCL tear in the way that it is with an ACL tear. So this may allow a primary repair to be successful. And that explains why there's a vascular difference between these two. So um, this arrangement means, therefore, that the PCL prevents the femur from sliding forwards on the tibia, particularly in the flexed position. And so in this position, this is the only really stabilising force against that directional movement. The ACL prevents the reverse movement, backward displacement of the femur on the tibial plateau, but that's not a common mechanism, uh, and the ACL is therefore far more important in limiting extension and in that screw-home effect during the terminal phases of that knee extension in the way I've described it. There are, I think... Probably a few extra caveats that are worth thinking about. The synovial attachment, unlike other joints, doesn't correspond to the capsular attachment because there are these intra articular extra-synovial components. It's more complex than that. Laterally, it's separated by the popliteus tendon, and of course, on the tibia by the reflections of the ACL with the infrapatellar fold extending from the inferior patella and a kind of alar fold, as it's called, that extends laterally and medially. And that keeps the synovium in contact with the articular surfaces and therefore becomes, as we've described, an effective Haversian fat pad, essentially a mass of closely packed fat cells that are enclosed by fibrous septi that have extensive capillary and nervous supply and which are covered with synovial cells. That's what we mean. I think also one may draw comparisons between the lateral compartment of the knee and the radiocapitella joint of the elbow. If you want to go back into our um, uh, podcast uh, on the elbow and forearm in the upper limb earlier this year, this will explain a little bit, but there is some similarity between the lateral part of the knee and this so-called radiocapitella joint of the elbow, which Comparisons between the medial knee compartment, I think, and the olecran and trochlear articulation. The articular surface of the medial tibial plateau is particularly concave, the lateral surface more with a kind of AP convexity, so that that aids that screw-home mechanism where there's a degree of internal rotation of the femur on the fixed tibia as the knee completes extension. Weight-bearing is thus central on the medial and lateral tibial plateaus, but also it's in a sloping medial and lateral manner, also a little bit like a saddle. So it's, there's a kind of rocking extension stability as well. Like all joints, we've got to look at the blood supply and the nerve supply. The anastomosis around the knee is a bit like that around the elbow too. It involves five geniculate vessels, the lateral and medial, inferior and superior genicular arteries, and the middle genicular artery, as well as a direct anastomosis usually with the popliteal artery, so that's pretty easy. The nerve supply, the joint is supplied from the femoral nerve, which is part of Hilton's law in the way we've previously described it, but it's via a branch that goes to the vastus medialis, as well as some nerve supply from the sciatic nerve, both actually from the tibial and the common fibular genicular branches, as well as an obturator nerve supply, the posterior division of the obturator nerve behind the adductor brevis down to the knee, which is part of that so-called Houshep-Rongberg sign in strangulated obturator hernia. The sensory innovation is a little variable, Uh, it's been reviewed in a recent cadaveric study by Fonkoue F-O-N-K-O-U-E, a good article actually on it in Surgical Anatomy Radiology 2019, a group from Belgium, and it includes articular branches from the femoral nerve via branches of the saphenous nerve, the infrapatellar branch after it emerges from the adductor canal uh, in particular. And the nerve, as we've said, to vastus medialis, the nerve to vastus lateralis, the nerve to vastus intermedius, they'll all supply the knee joint. There are, as I've said, the articular branches of the obturator nerve, which comes down from the posterior branch between the obturator externus and the pectineus, and then between the adductor brevis and adductor magnus, and one branch emerges through the adductor magnus. There are articular branches of the sciatic nerve. Um, There are two constant branches here, supralateral genicular under the biceps femoris from the common fibular nerve and a posterior articular nerve from the tibial division of the sciatic nerve and sometimes a transverse lateral retinacular nerve people have described but there's also a lateral recurrent genicular nerve one of the few recurrent nerves in the body Um, can you think of a couple of others and as it comes from the common fibular nerve it also innervates the proximal tibiofibular joint. And all of this is relevant, I mention all of this because it's relevant in a knee block where there are effectively five constant articular branch targets for local anaesthesia. A supramedial genicular nerve, which is the branch of the nerve vastus medialis, that's usually just in front of the adductor tubercle. There's a supralateral genicular nerve, which is a branch of the sciatic nerve, as I mentioned, and that's near the postro superior angle of the lateral condyle. There's an inframedial genicular nerve, which is a branch of the sciatic nerve beneath the tibial collateral ligament. There's an infralateral genicular nerve, a branch of the common fibular nerve at the level of the top of the tibial tuberosity. And there's often an infrapatellar branch of the saphenous nerve in a line between the apex of the patella and the tibial tuberosity. So there's a kind of encirclement around the nerve there in terms of local anesthesia, but it, it's not a random thing. It has these particular approaches, supramedially, supralaterally, inframedially, infralaterally, and infrapatellar. So these are important things to actually know. Of course, when we think of the movements of the knee joint, uh, we think of course of flexion and extension and rotation hyperextension is limited by the ACL but also by the oblique popliteal ligament and the collateral ligaments. And as the lateral condyle passively rotates actually around the axial radius of the ACL and into position during extension, after that the ACL becomes fully taut and the broader articular surface of the medial condyle means that the femur has to rotate medially on the tibia and then the oblique popliteal ligament, the medial and lateral collaterals then start to tighten simultaneously, allowing for a rigid or fully rigid knee in extension, and that's what I mean by that um, so-called screw-home position. Now, to unlock the knee from that position, this is quite interesting, because there's a lateral rotation which has to occur and that then precedes flexion. You can't just flex a locked knee. All of these four ligaments are now relaxed, and there's flexion on the lateral side by biceps, on the medial side by semitendinosus and semimembranosus. That's why they cross the joint in that way. When the knee is flexed, there's actually less separation of the meniscus, and that's how they become trapped and injured. The medial meniscus is tethered to the medial ligament and far less mobile than the lateral meniscus which has an attachment to popliteus and also the femur by these menisco-femoral ligaments that I mentioned before. And that allows it to get pulled out of the way and it explains also why medial meniscal tears are at least 20 times more common than lateral meniscus tears. And so to summarise AP stability is the cruciates, and lateral stability, the collaterals and the oblique popliteal ligament, the iliotibial tract stabilizes laterally, as does the vastus medialis medially. Now, this is a lot to take in. I get that, um, so it's worthwhile. I think probably stopping, going back over it again, re-listening to the tape, trying to figure it out, even on the base bones, or if you've got access. To cadavers, you can get some appreciation of of what I'm talking about. But it's worth going over this area a few times, listening to the tape a few times. It's a long tape, uh, but it explains a bit more, I think, of the biomechanics of the stability. We've still not finished, I guess. We've got to also talk about the matter of the popliteus. The muscle flesh arises from the back of the tibia above that culeal line. You can check that out on a tibia, and it moves upwards and laterally to a small pit on the lateral femoral condyle. The tendon enters the knee, as we've said many times, extrasynovially, below the free edge, a falciform ridge, which we call the arcuate popliteal ligament, and part of that tendon inserts into the posterior convexity of the lateral meniscus. There's often a, a little deep bursa there and there's innovation by a branch of the tibial nerve winding around its lower border and penetrating it quite deeply, and this is also a nerve supply to the superior tibiofibular joint and part of the interosseous membrane. This little muscle popliteus assists, as I've said before, in the unlocking of the knee and rotating it, whilst at the same time drawing and protecting the lateral meniscus by drawing it posteriorly. Now, There are a few other things that we can talk about uh, uh, which I think are worth considering. Uh, Examination of the knee, for example. Um, uh, patellofemoral joint extensor mechanism assessments. Meniscal and chondral lesions assessing knee instability. All of these are separate topics which have a very anatomical basis. From the history we glean anatomy, we localise the pain whether it's an extension mechanism if we're talking about examination and history of the knee, whether it's a medial or lateral articular uh, pain, patellofemoral pain, the likelihood of a chondral lesion, whether there's posterior flexion pain uh, with instability. We get in our history a little bit of locking um, which is more common with the so-called bucket handle meniscal tear. The painful knee giving way can be very nonspecific, and that can occur with loose bodies, with patellochondromalacia, quadriceps weakness, any knee instability, really. So the history has some limits for us anatomically. We look for patellofemoral, patellofemoral instability, that Q angle, which is the intersection of a line that's drawn from the anterior superior iliac spine to the center of the patella, and then a central line drawn down from the tibial-tubicle to the patella centre, and to move the patella into the trochlea, it's best to measure the Q-angle at about 30 degrees of flexion. Increases in that Q-angle out to 15 to 20 degrees are more associated with a subluxation risk. But it isn't really a true diagnostic tool for patellofemoral pain. One can look for patella tilt with lateral weaknesses and patella glide with medial weaknesses. And I'd refer uh, uh, you guys, the students, to an orthopedic uh, test for these. Each you glide is performed with the knee flexed at 30 degrees, with a glide laterally over about 75% of the patella width. That's in varying stages of flexion. There's the so called patella apprehension test. So, for those interested, uh, you can look up these areas. If you want me to create a more extensive podcast on it, I'm happy to do so. The important thing here is the medial patella femoral ligament. Uh, one can also record patella tracking from extension into flexion, where during flexion the patella moves centrally with an increasing facet content with the femoral condyles. When you're looking for meniscal and chondral lesions, the menisci, as I've said before, I think have no direct innervation, and hence pain is only due to an adjacent synovitis. The tests here are a combination of flexion and tibial rotation with a stress on the joint line, where the joint is at its narrowest as the condyles tightly engage the guy. And there are a number of these tests. They take the form of the McMurray test. That There's also Braggard and Steinman's test, the rotation test after Graham a- Apley, uh, an orthopedic surgeon uh, out of Perford, Surrey, who ran a wonderful course who I knew quite well, Um, but also there's Burla's test, there are other tests that you can read about, the duck walk or Helfert's test, Mercase, pairs and so on. Again, I'd ask the student of orthopaedics maybe to look all this stuff up. It's not particularly my area, but it's interesting reading. Briefly, in the palpation testing, McMurray's test, for example, the knee is flexed and the leg is then externally rotated. You're feeling the joint line, you're extending the knee as you're doing that. So the lateral meniscus internally rotates the knee. The test for the lateral meniscus is carried out by internally rotating the leg. There are other tests you can examine, the Braggard's test, Steinman's second test, a figure of four meniscal stress manoeuvre, putting the leg into a figure of four position with rapid valgus varus strains. Apley's grinding test with the patient prone, the knee is flexed and the knee is kind of pushed and pulled into position where pushing suggests a meniscal lesion and a chondral lesion is more suggested if there's no difference between the push and the pull. So these are a little inexact, but similar tests to the Burler's test, there are others, the squat test, duck walking test, as I've mentioned, the Thessaly test. And for those interested, I think you can look them up. Uh, there are assessments also of knee instability, and here the proximal tibia reaches an abnormal position. The main structures here are, of course, the ACL, the PCL, the medial and lateral collateral ligaments. And these are as four types of tests or stress tests, slide tests, pivot and jerk tests, rotational tests. There's a lot of this that has been written. And these will have grades of opening usually of sort of between 0 to 10 millimetres of movement. Slide tests the tibia, for example, which is slid in a way to subluxate it from the distal femur the so-called anterior and posterior draw tests that we see all the doctors and physios doing around the grounds of football and rugby matches. Internal rotation tightens, as we know, the posterior um, cruciate ligament and the postrolateral corner with the so-called Lachman test for the ACL. It's evaluation in full extension where you suddenly get a soft stop, which is highly predictive for an ACL rupture. Um... These can be performed, obviously, right immediately, even if there's a significant haemarthrosis. You can still get the impression that somebody has an underlying ACL rupture. A posterior lacman evaluates the PCL, although it's a, a little less useful. And in the chronic PCL, there's a kind of sag or laxity of the joint with the knee flexed. The tibia kind of falls into a degree of posterior subluxation. And there are a number of these other tests I won't go into them. Um, There is the pivot shift or jerk tests for rotatory instability, the uh, ACL-deficient patients that affects ACL uh, cases. It's a painful uh, test, actually, with a tibial shift. As the iliotibial band actually passes past the axis of action, it pushes the tibial plateau backwards with a kind of clunk. It's quite a painful test. And there are a number of those types, the noise, the Houston test, the Slocum test and so on. External rotation tests specifically evaluate the posterolateral corner where a, um, a PCL deficient knee has an external rotatory instability and these injuries are often linked to an ACL or to a PCL tear. And it should be noted that there are different types of injury patterns and therefore different advantages of the different tests. For example, you might say that antramedial instability suggests an injured ACL, medial collateral ligament, and medial meniscus. I mentioned before, I should have mentioned it earlier, that's the so-called unhappy triad, the blown knee, as some people call it, the O'Donoghue triad. And it results from a lateral blow as a lateral force impacts the knee whilst the foot is fixed. And we see that terrible injury all the time. Uh, Here, certainly in Australia, we certainly do with the greatest game on earth, of course, uh, Aussie rules football. Um, I can make a podcast on Aussie rules football if anyone needs that. But there's a very strong valgus strain here, and all the medial structures basically in this O'Donoghue's triad are opened up. And it can, of course, occur in rugby, um, which is a game I must say I don't quite understand. And also um, it's, it's a type of injury that you can see in a motocross. The diagnosis is assisted by valgus stress testing by an anterior drawer or an anterior lacman. Continuing with those injury patterns, anterolateral instability is the anterior cruciate ligament, the lateral collateral ligament, and sometimes the lateral meniscus, and that's assessed by a valgus stress testing by the anterior drawer, the lacman, and the pivot test. Posterolateral instability is the PCL, and that's assessed by the posterolateral drawer test posterior medial instability, where you've got an injury to the medial collateral ligament, the ACL. Um, uh, You can have a valgus stress and a posterior draw test, which can help there. And there can be anteromedial and anterolateral instability, combined injuries of the ACL and the medial collateral ligament and the lateral capsule, where the PCL is actually still intact, and that can be assessed by an anterior draw test or by a LACMAN and by other tests. On the other hand, you may have posteromedial and posterolateral instability where the ACL, the medial collateral ligament and the PCL are actually injured. Sometimes the PCL can be intact, sometimes not and this can be assessed by an anterior drawer test. Now I hope that's not all too confusing for you all but the point I'm trying to make is that the examination of the knee and the assessment of the knee is entirely anatomical and you've got to understand really I think the biomechanics of how these cruciates, oblique popliteal ligaments, medial collateral ligament, lateral collateral ligament, actually function, and their extensions particularly, which makes their function a little bit more complex. I suppose if we can finish this off, because it is a long uh, podcast, I would have said that the final area to consider is arthroscopy. And some a few little practical points, which briefly one can go into... Um, as I say, I'm not an orthopedic expert, but it's worth dropping around to your local operating theatre and having a look at someone doing an arthroscopy, depending on what they're doing it for. But the first portal is typically an antrilateral portal at the lower pole of the patella with the knee flexed near the lateral edge of the patella, tendon, with a corresponding antramedial portal. Vision is a bit limited if the portals are placed too low, and the 30-degree sheath is inserted, it's locked into place with a fluid irrigation once the suprapatellar pouch has been identified. And that's examined in extension, assessment of the back of the patellar cartilage, then down to the femoral condyle inflection, then the anterior horn of the medial meniscus and the anterior cruciate ligament can then be seen, which can then be assessed for laxity with a probe. So there's a kind of order and assessment of these. A needle can be inserted in the anterolateral port. That can identify the medial meniscus. And if the leg is flexed and brought into a kind of figure four position, the posterior aspect of the meniscus can be visualised. So through this, one can assess cartilage, wear and tear, which can then be graded. There's an international grading system with fraying, tears, cleavage. And, of course, there's the possibility of arthroscopic shave debridement. So... We'll leave it there uh, at that for, for the moment. And I want to continue into the next podcast on the leg. Uh, we're going to look at the dorsal and flexor surfaces of the leg. We've got to look at the osteology of the tibia and the fibula. So there's quite a lot to do. Um, thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you next time.